Welcome back to Season 2 of That's So Second Millennium, the podcast where we explore how science and religion can coexist, because they can, and what they can produce together if we let them, because your third millennium will be a whole lot brighter if you do. Your hosts are Bill Schmidt and me, Paul Geesting. Welcome to episode 55 of That's So Second Millennium. This is the first half of our interview with Darsha Narvaez at the University of Notre Dame. Bill will give you a fuller intro to her and her work. I'm just going to summarize that this half of the interview focuses on the kind of socialization that we need as human beings, as social animals, from the womb onward. We'll talk about the problems that come up when we don't get this kind of socialization and some of the ways of healing from lacking that in our lives. We look back and recognize in our own lives uh, that we're missing some of this, some of the symptoms of missing that and what we can try to do about it, uh, what we can start to do about it. It's difficult but not impossible. I reflected in listening to this episode over again that the Christian and Jewish scriptures are kind of um, perhaps often taken as revolutionary in terms of the amount of focus they place on individual responsibility, but that doesn't mean that they are preaching individual isolation. And unfortunately, in our culture, the Western culture that we live in has drifted in that direction in the last several centuries. Um, and people like Darsha are trying to work to uh, bring us back to a sense of reality and how human beings actually work. So with that, I'll let Bill take it away. Darsha Narvaez is a truly distinctive and internationally recognized interdisciplinary and creative scholar who studies what it means to be human and how do we develop our humanity and morality. It's impossible to sum up quickly all the different media and face-to-face ways through which she's transforming people's perspectives on the complementarity of science and spirituality. She's doing it in ways that resonate with people's lives on real issues like uh, how to care for your baby and how to nurture the holistic development of a child, body, mind, and heart. Listeners can access all those details plus videos and blog posts uh, on websites that we'll talk about later. But just a couple of quick high points. Um, uh, Professor Narvaez's uh, 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 intellectual masterpiece, let's say, it was published in 2014, uh, Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality, Evolution, Culture, and Wisdom. So she's a professor of psychology here at the University of Notre Dame. Some of her most recent work is focused on what she calls evolved parenting practices and studies of small band hunter-gatherers who represent the type of society in which human beings first evolved. Darsha, so thank you very much for talking with Paul and me on That's So Second Millennium. I, I welcome you, Paul. Yes. Welcome to you, and Paul, please take it away. Yeah, I was really intrigued to uh, find out about, uh, actually, I think Bill let me know about you and your work initially um, a number of months ago, and uh, we had the chance to have an informal conversation with you uh, back in the polar vortex, back on January 31st and February 1st up at the, up at Notre Dame. So that was uh, that was a memorable, memorable experience in multiple ways. 
but uh yeah so in the context of the podcast um we're, we're trying to examine different kinds of frontier issues between religion and science and your work seems to really help us lay out some of the que the parts where science and religion can actually build on each other science faith spirituality um actually trying to cooperate and help us live better lives so um trying to pull out of like the of course you know wide variety of topics that we were uh just trying to discuss and and we sent you that list beforehand so uh we we had some sort of hot button issues and then some things that were maybe would provide some more necessary background is there a, a part of that more background material you'd like to start with or do we want to just go straight to the uh the questions I can start. I'm happy to start talking about my focus and what I'm trying to integrate and try to uh, discover about how to be human and maintain our humanity. <laughs> so yeah, our, yeah, let's let's start with that. Our, my lab, my uh, research work, and my writing focus on the nature of human development and how well it's important to understand how our early life experience shapes our personality, our brain function, our well-being, our immune systems, all the brain systems, everything about us is very much malleable in those early years. So it really matters what kind of experience that children or babies especially have for who they can become later. Because if you overstress a child, a baby, in the wrong ways, um, well, we should be in the womb another 18 months. That's the first thing to know. So we are aging like fetuses. We're like fetuses until about 18 months. We can't walk around and feed ourselves, right, until about that time and various other pieces of the body aren't finished. And so it's really important at that, uh, in that time period and the years after to realize that the parents' caregiving and the community's support of families is shaping that baby's perspectives, their well-being, their social capacities, and their morality, which is my area is moral development, particularly in flourishing. So that means uh, it, we need the evolved, what we call the evolved nest. Like every animal, we have a nest and uh, we kind of forgot it in the industrialized world. And so you can see the results in all these dysregulated people that are kind of self-centered and all about me. That's in part related to the, the lack of that evolved nest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it seems like there's so many forces in contemporary culture that, I mean, in contemporary American culture, at any rate, that sort of scream at us that children are this horrendous burden that it gets in the way of the things that we really want to be, that we should really want to be involved in in life. And that's unimaginably poisonous to how we, uh, how we start out life, of course, how our children start out life. There's a recent study... A recent study showed uh, that was done uh, comparing parents and non-parents' happiness around the world, and they found that virtually in every country, uh, parents were less happy than people without children, except mm -hmm. in a couple countries, one of which was Portugal, and they looked into, whoa, what's there about Portugal? Well, uh -huh. they have extended family support for raising children, which is part of our evolved nest, part of our heritage, is to have more than mom, more than mom and dad care for that child. And because babies especially need so much care 24-7, they need to be pretty much held and carried and, you know, 
physically being physically present with them and responded to keeping them in optimal arousal while their brain is rapidly developing because the biochemistry yeah. matters for how that brain develops. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's growing while it's turning on. So the, uh, the nest involves uh, various uh, practices. So it's soothing birth and actually soothing and calm gestation. So pregnant moms need to have lots of support so they can stay relaxed. We used to know this until the last like 40 years, I think. Uh, and then we need soothing birth. So no trauma at birth, no separation of mom and baby. This is naturalistic birth. And in, in, the, in the 20th century, we moved to hospital births with all these uh, intrusive medical procedures that actually traumatize mom and baby and undermine breastfeeding, which is another component of the nest, which should occur for several years because it develops the brain properly, the immune system. It's tailored to the boy, if it's a boy baby, or the girl, if it's a girl baby, to the needs of the child in the moment if there's an infectious agent around. Mother's milk creates an antibody. It's just amazing. It's an amazing science laboratory. Uh, and then affectionate touch pretty constantly. The baby needs that to grow well. And you can see results of uh, neglected kids. Their brains are much smaller and they just don't have capacities. They just, they're, they can't flourish later even. Uh, responsiveness, keeping the baby calm and, and not distressing them. So no cry it out sleep training. That's my most popular blog post at my Psychology Today uh, blog. Uh, it's called mm-hmm. Dangers of Crying It Out. And it's got 2.7 million hits so far. (laughs) Uh, So parents are doing parent Googling because they don't have that extended family and the wise elders to guide them now, which is also very scary and not good for kids. Because when you undermine that early development, you're creating a stress-reactive brain. And you don't even realize that you're stress-reactive. You just shut down your openness. You shut down your ability to think very uh, complexly. And you get into black and whiteness and stereotyping because it's easier It's easier to latch on to some ideology that tells you what the answers are. So you don't have to actually be present emotionally in the moment to figure it out with that other person you're with, right? That takes a lot of the kind of development that occurs in the early life of the right hemisphere. So we're undermining. um, And the last two are um, free play, self-directed play of the child with multiple age playmates in the natural world. So they feel connected. So they develop the... The ability to stop and start action, to be less aggressive, to be cooperative, all sorts of things are are grown by play, which is a thing that adults can take up too in order to heal themselves if they actually have a lot of stress reactivity or an inability to be flexible. Start playing with kids, little kids, play tag, play wrestling, you know, things like that. And that's how you grow. And the last thing is a positive climate, a positive social community uh, experience. And when we get that, we feel like we belong. We feel like we can develop our social competence. We feel like we can develop our own spirits because each of us is unique, a unique image of God. Uh, And what that image is has to be nurtured and nourished. Easily shut down when you stress kids out early and uh, shut down in adolescence too. if If you don't get connected to your spiritual deeper self in adolescence, all sorts of things can go wrong. So there's a whole nestedness that we need from early, from before birth, to uh, throughout life. And we kind of undermine that industri- in industrialized societies with neoliberalism, the focus on money making all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a very skewed set of values. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's so much there that uh, I, I feel like uh, I want to jump in 15 directions at once from there. Um, so we talk about... Oh, let's see. I mean, I'm, and of course, I'm, I'm, I'm very much walking through my own experience and memories and photographs on the wall of my own, uh, of my own and my brother's childhood and infancy. And, um, yeah, just thinking about elements that were, you know, not necessarily there or not there at a very high level. Um, and in all of this and, you know, thinking about other people that I know, people that I talk to, um, I mean, it's, it's pervasive. Everyone, everyone's a child at some point and, everyone grows up in a culture and we have, you know, hundreds of millions of people just here in the United States and who have grown up in this culture, you know, multiple generations removed from, you know, an alternative way of living, um, living this, you know, in so many cases isolated. I mean, that was just the norm. I, you know, I internalized it way very young that, you know, for my father's side of the family, there were six children and, the other five all moved to some random corner of the country. And that was just, that was just the norm that we expected. That was certainly the norm that I internalized that that was, those are the people I identified with. That was the example I was going to follow. And, and that's, you know, that's what my brother has done. And that's, that's what I've done. Of course, you know, I'm not in the situation where I'm raising children, unfortunately, but he is. And yeah, it makes it very difficult. It makes it unbelievably difficult. Um, you know, so well, I'm, I guess I'll go ahead and ask this. It may not be the most logical next question in the sequence, but, um, you know, for those of us who have been through a situation where we sort of recognize in ourselves, you know, whether very clearly like I do, um, or maybe just, you know, listening to this discussion and thinking, you know, there may have been a little bit missing of this. Um, what kind, what can we do for people who've been through, you know, I mean, many, so many of us have been through some kind of trauma. Um, some kind of abuse or some kind of accident um, or or we just know that uh, we were lacking that sort of nurturing to some degree you know our parents doing probably the best that they knew how to do um, what what can we do about that what kinds of uh, options are there uh, to try to heal from this to sort of cope with this and to avoid passing it to the degree possible to the next generation well there's several things you can do uh, one of the uh, issues that occurs that's been discussed widely in psychology is the attachment system. And uh, if you've developed an insecure attachment from having uh, caregivers that weren't responsive and were inconsistent, then it's important before you have kids to fix that, to figure out how to develop a secure attachment. And the way you do that is you have a good friend, uh, a good partner, who actually cares for you and is consistently caring. Now, it's a little harder because it's all neurobiological reactivity that you have to not having a good relationship because that's what you learned. So it takes some work. Yeah. One thing to do is to look into uh, building your attachment security. Now, in my 2014 book, I talk about three uh, basic kind of brain mindsets that we can get into self-protectionism when the stress response kicks in and it happens so subtly we sometimes don't realize that we're into this mode of wanting to be dominant or to submit to whoever we're with uh, just to feel mm -hmm. safe it's very subtle but the ways to uh, then get through that you have to learn to calm yourself down to recognize when you're getting a little tense and to figure out ways that work for you to help yourself calm down i work with my students we do learn to 
deep breathe. That's belly breathing. So you can look that up on YouTube and learn how to do it. That actually changes your metabolism and changes your, the way your brain is functioning and increases your health, mental health, physical health. Uh, they've done studies. If you do it six times, for example, um, in a row. So one thing is to learn self-calming. That could be meditative prayer, things that let you feel okay in the moment. And you want to develop your intuition about what things make you feel safe. And then, of course, you always want to stretch yourself and find things, help yourself get through those situations where you don't feel safe and find ways to uh, calm yourself down and so on. So self-calming is one. Another one that when we leave babies and children alone and make them sleep in their cribs alone and, and put them in their own rooms, this is all very strange for a social mammal. So, and then you put them in same age classrooms and they don't get to learn the cooperative social skills that we would otherwise in our species, normal circumstance learn from being with others, an extended family all day long, you know, multiple ages and how do you get along with this person and then that person. And you learn from babyhood on how to get along widely and you enjoy it. People love to be with you. When you have the extended family around, there's someone who always loves you. Even if maybe it's not your parents, <laughs> there's somebody who cares for you and just, you know, you, you're the gleam of their eye. And so what we have to learn as adults then is to find the places for social joy, to build that sense of, of relaxation with one or more, hopefully more people than just one partner and to feel comfortable and to learn to, you know, be yourself. So to be playful and, and spontaneous in those circumstances. And what I'm doing with my students right now is I used to be a music teacher, a classroom music teacher, and we're using folk song games. We're going to go play them with kindergartners in a couple of weeks, but they, the students themselves, you know, we're trying to develop our sense of social joy and connection with each other and a sense of being free. And when we play those games, you should see the smiles on their faces and they laugh and they're, you know, right there because they're just playing and following the rules of the game and, you know, being spontaneously changing the rules too. And so that's the second thing in my, that I talk about in the book, social joy. And then the third thing is you have to expand your imagination. Our imaginations have been shrunk down to thinking about me and mine. And we need to, uh, or uh, even our uh, righteous morality you know that we think our way is the best way and so we're kind of inflexible in our thinking that's what happens when you don't get good support in those early years when your brain's developing you begin become stiff-minded and your prefrontal cortex and other systems just don't work very well so you have to you know use the self-calming the social joy and then also expand your understanding of who we are as human beings and read widely get to know people who are different from you uh, and, and take time to be in the moment. And I expand this to being in nature as well. We've kind of cut down our forests and our uh, exterminated animals and species and all sorts of things. And we think now being human is a human, uh, living in a human built environment, but that's really weird too for us as a species. We are meant to be connected to nature to feel like we are part of the earth and that we have responsibilities for nurturing and uh, keeping the flourishing of our natural landscapes going because we depend on them. We, the earth, uh, we don't, uh, the earth doesn't belong to us. We belong to the earth. Uh, and so we can't exist without air, water, 
soil. I mean, we're dependent on the earth, right? and we kind of have the opposite view at the moment in our culture, which is very dangerous. So to expand our imaginations in ways that are actually honest and true, rather than these kind of uh, self-aggrandizing human beliefs about how great we are. Hmm. Yeah, so, so four points, the self-calming to build or rebuild a social network because we needed to have interaction with a, uh, you know, multi-age extended family as opposed to, and so to try to do something now to, to cope with that. Um, and then to go outside yourself, that was a very intriguing point in terms of, I can of course think of influential people in my life who I, you know, yeah, it was, it had to be done their way. And if it wasn't that way, it was wrong. And preferably you had to read their mind because it was obvious you should do it their way. Um, right. and, yeah. and of course seeing that crop up in my own life, um, which, you know, I try to sit on it. I recognize it as a problem. And yet, uh, that's, that's kind of, uh, it, it, it's, it doesn't go away on its own. It doesn't mm -hmm. just go away for thinking about it. Um, yeah, and then and the contact with nature. Of, Sorry. Yeah. And part of, uh, that letting go of that stiff mindedness is to learn to come to situations with an open heart, with compassion mm -hmm. as your primary goal, rather than being mm -hmm. right or dominant or uh, finding, you know, a, a place at the top somehow. But to realize that you are, we are all together. We are one. We are one nature in a way. We're all earth creatures. We were created together. Uh, and we are here as a unit in a way. Uh, so why compete, right? Rather cooperate to help each other flourish, to, to put your mind in that mode instead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So come to situations seeking understanding as opposed to trying to uh, impose your own uh, outlook on it. Yes, which means that you, you need humility. So you need to realize mm -hmm. that your way is not the only way. And that if yeah. you grew up in, a, in an environment where there was only one way, it takes a while to learn that that's only one way, that that's only one perspective in the world. So learning another language helps here, going to other countries and, and uh, making friends with people from alternative uh, perspectives and cultures. Our work, we've done some on multiculturalism, and that also helps then uh, loosen you up, <laughs> essentially, and make you more flexible. And intelligence is about flexibility. It's being attuned to the moment and being flexible and being able to figure out how to solve whatever that issue or problem is you're facing. It's not about being stiff-minded and demanding your way or the highway. Right. That's ironic, that right. Our, that's ironic right. that our social media, even, now, many things about our culture, they're subtly or not so subtly convincing us that uh, everybody we talk with or everybody we want to talk with agrees with us. And it, it's kind of an antisocial media in that sense. Do you see that as a big factor in possibly what's harming our culture yes. now? So I've been talking mostly about uh, the neurobiological aspects that grow from early experience and then you carry forward into your life. That's one way of how you, um, what you bring to the situation, those kind of reactivities. But there's another way, and that's the narratives and stories we tell ourselves that can also trigger us in one direction or another towards openness or towards self-protection, right? So 
are stories that we put ourselves into, that we read, that we listen to, that we pay attention to. Those things are shaping what we think is real. And so it's really critical here to be careful because they're, they're developing your intuitions about what is good and right. And so you have to select those environments carefully. Aristotle pointed this out, <laughs> that you have to select your friends, your activities carefully and you can't really do that until you're about maybe age 30. And so you need guidance. You need elders who know how to guide you until then, until you can do it yourself. And we don't provide kids at all with that anymore. We throw them into a, a very vicious media environment. Uh, I mean, even before social media, we had violent TV, which is known to have longitudinal effects on people by increasing their aggression, decreasing sensitivity to victims, making them think that the world's a dangerous place, and all that is what you bring to situations. Oh my gosh, it's going to change your behavior. You've already your filters for how to deal with others have been shaped without your consent, really, because you've been thrown in that environment. But now we adults do have we have power to choose. Now we can go and watch or listen to immerse ourselves in media that promotes openness and compassion and connection rather than disconnection, distrust, and um, competitiveness. You know, may I ask one more follow-up question, Paul? Um, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, does our need for the evolved nest and the greater, broader community have a lot to do with uh, what's going on now? Uh, culturally and politically in terms of uh, identity politics, everybody's search for not only a, a sense of their own identity, but a, a, a desire to control their personal identity perhaps more than ever. Yeah. What happens in our species, typical early life is you your right hemisphere of the brain is growing more rapidly in those first years, and it's the seat of your self-control. It's the seat of empathy. It's the seat of uh, your sense of beingness and feeling connected to a higher level of being, of transcendence. And we undermine those years now. We stress the baby out so those things cannot don't develop. Then we put kids in classrooms to sit, and they should be playing throughout uh, childhood with other people out in the natural world so that they actually are developing their right hemisphere even more because it's scheduled to do that. And then the right hemisphere is a storehouse of how to be in the world that the left hemisphere, which is our deliberative conscious mind mostly, I'm speaking to generalities, uh, and it draws from that right hemisphere about how to behave. So if you haven't had much uh, real-life experience with other people in childhood, uh, in babyhood, or even in school-age years, you don't have much to draw on. You're just, you know, sitting there looking at a book uh, or a video game or something. And, and so then when you get to adulthood and you have to make decisions, you don't have anything, any personal knowledge, deep, embodied knowledge to draw on. You're going to have to pull from somewhere. So you pull out an ideology, you pull something attractive. And then adolescence, we are ready to grab onto some universal meaning uh, for why we're here. And so you're susceptible to cults. And our political um, extremes now are cult-like. Uh, it's just uh, amazing. And so we have arrested development all the way through. Some people get stuck at age two because they got thwarted in their autonomy and their wish to do what they wanted. And so then they, that's the big thing. Freedom, liberty, I want to do what I want. And don't 
you know, don't shame me, don't tread on me, all that stuff. Uh, so those people are kind of stuck there because you have to go through these processes and you can get stuck as uh, psychoanalytic theories point out, although some of their Freud theory, Freudian theories are weird because of all the sexual thing. But uh, and then other people get stuck in adolescence. They don't they don't feel like they're connected to anything and they find an ideology of some sort to hang on to rather than going through a vision quest that our ancestors did with uh, had their young people do and find a way. So Native Americans would, uh, when they thought a child was ready, an adolescent was ready, would uh, have them prepared to go out um, alone in, in the natural world for several days and find their connection to the universe. Very spiritual journey. We don't give that to our kids. We don't give it to adolescents. And so they go into the military and then they take up that kind of, viewpoint of the world, us against them, you know, black and white, not everybody, of course, but I'm just saying there's so many pitfalls now to growing up that we shouldn't be surprised we have kind of a mess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one direction you can go for sure. Um, yeah, and of course, you know, both left and right have their own flavors of all of these things. And in the modern world, there's so many different sub flavors of them. Yeah, I've been scribbling down uh, questions uh, more questions like Matt. If you enjoyed this episode, or it made you think, come on over to That's So Second Millennium's Facebook page and leave a comment or ask a question. We'd love to hear from you.